Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I don't think I ever would have had criticism if what I had done was like a baking cookbook. We closed the central kitchen and the, the teeny, teeny site that we opened. The story of closing them was that we were going out of business. Every kind of media outlet had some sort of piece on like why I was the worst person on earth. The whole narrative was a real criticism of healthy eating. Really did feel I was a kind of public enemy number one. I certainly didn't have the confidence to fight back. It was really brutal. Telling someone that the way they're dealing with a chronic illness is wrong is deeply problematic. No one would have not taken a man's chronic illness seriously and would have told them that they were doing something wrong in response to it. Strangely, it was this moment of like just extreme apathy. I just gave up. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Working Hard, Hardly Working. Today I'm talking to none other than the deliciously Ella, the starter of all things Instagram, food, plant-based movement, everything back in the early 2010s. Let me tell you, I was obsessed when she originally started and I've followed her journey since then and I think she has a really, 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 really interesting story. We delve into a lot of it in today's episode. We talk about everything from her original diagnosis, being bedbound at university, her kind of approach to that, her mindset, how she felt like she played the victim a bit and really found it hard to get out of a really low mental state and physical state kind of because of this. Then also talking about starting the business, she moved in with her boyfriend a week after they started dating, which I thought was one of my real learnings from this podcast. And I think you will love to hear that story. But on top of that, we spent a bit of time talking about how much negative press she got especially when she kind of blew up in her career and it was so interesting to hear this kind of from her point of view as someone who has not spoken about it a lot and she kind of says her defense mechanism is being a bit kind of vanilla and retreating and not saying anything about it even when things might be unfair but also when things might be kind of really actually quite problematic but I thought it was really interesting to hear everything from her point of view including opening and closing a series of restaurants in London, the kind of public effect that had, the press's take on that. I'm so grateful for Ella to have come in today and talking so openly and honestly about her whole journey, which has been very, very public. I thought it was really beautiful to see her kind of open up and share all of that. And I'm so grateful to her for having done that. So I hope you really enjoyed the episode. I think it's a really, 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 really great one. And if you did enjoy it, please make sure to subscribe and also to rate the podcast because it helps other people discover it. And that's helpful because that means we can get a more aesthetic studio. If you watch this on YouTube currently, the studio is ugly. So yeah, please fund the studio. Please rate the podcast. Um, we really appreciate it. And as always, have a lovely day. Ella Mills is an award-winning author, entrepreneur, and champion of plant-based living. She was the founder of Deliciously Ella in 2012, a plant-based food and wellness platform sharing delicious ways to feel better. Although it originated as a recipe website, Ella Mills has developed the business into a restaurant, a range of plant-based food products, an app, a podcast, and a collection of best-selling recipe books. Prior to starting Deliciously Ella, in 2011, Ella was diagnosed with postural tachycardia syndrome, as well as Ehlers-Danlos and mast cell activation disorder, which followed four months in and out of hospital. The condition affected Ella's autonomic nervous system and also meant she struggled with digestive issues, chronic fatigue, a series of infections, and a whole host of other symptoms. After being prescribed a cocktail of medication that had no effect, Ella hit rock bottom, both physically and mentally. It was at this point that Ella looked into other ways of managing her condition and turned to whole foods, a plant-based diet, and overhauled her lifestyle. Deliciously Ella has become a leader in the plant-based space. Together with her husband and Deliciously Ella's CEO, they've published six best-selling cookbooks, including the fastest-selling cookbook ever, a lifestyle app with recipes, workouts, and meditations, 
a central London cafe, and several ranges of food products in over 7,000 stores across the UK, with customers ranging from Tesco to Boots to Waitrose and Costa. Thanks so much for joining me. Such a pleasure. I'm so excited to get into your story. I think that in the UK and having participated in the fitness space from like early teens in terms of like 2010s rather than yeah. my teens, <laughs> like you've made such a mark and you were such like a first mover in the space. I just can't wait to get into your whole story and you know how it's been since then. What would be really helpful to kind of set the scene would be just to give a little bit of background on like the start of your life, going to uni, set the scene for us. Okay. I guess it's not that interesting. I had a kind of complicated in some ways childhood, mm -hmm. um, straightforward in others, um, second of four siblings. Mm -hmm. But I never really, and I didn't know this at the time, I wish I had, because I think I would have been a lot happier, but I really didn't know who I was. Mm -hmm. Hadn't figured out anything that interested me or what I was good at. I felt kind of distinctly average. Mm -hmm. And I, um, in retrospect, did have actually very, very low self-esteem. I just couldn't figure myself out at all. Yeah. And I'm sure that's something that lots of people will relate to. There was not one specific problem or um, that it didn't manifest in one specific way. I just fundamentally wasn't particularly happy mm. and I didn't particularly like myself. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if you would have known that from the outside. It was much more internal. And then I went to uni and I went up to Scotland. I wanted to get a kind of sense of distance to see if that would help me kind of, I guess, establish myself and get yeah, to know myself. or like myself. find out who you are by meeting other people. Exactly, and no one I knew was going there with me and it was, you know, nicely far away from home but close enough. And and I did, I, I actually loved it and I had two amazing years there. And that second year, I just felt, wow, this is how life can feel. I was so kind of joyful and happy and so stuck in and had made loads of friends and got this great boyfriend and... Yeah, it felt like the pieces of, of who I was and how I felt kind of made sense. I still had no idea what I wanted to do with my right. life. What were you studying? I was studying history of art. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go to art school. I'd always been a much more creative person, but mm -hmm. my dad felt that wasn't kind of legitimate. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> basically, that's a theme that will continue. Um, but so, I, so that was like my compromise, um, effectively. And yeah, I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it or mm. kind of particularly want to pursue it so I, I really didn't know what was next but I was really enjoying my life at that mm. point and then it was the end of my second year of university that I got very unwell out of nowhere and it kind of felt like a slap in the face because I'd gone you know for the first time in 21 years I felt happy felt excited I felt I knew who I was and suddenly I felt and I felt like I fitted in and I'd never felt like I fitted mm. in before I felt like I was always trying to fit in but hadn't quite succeeded and then I felt more alien more of an outsider than I'd ever felt I felt lower than I'd ever felt and I think there was this even more frustration almost because it was you finally felt you were on the path you wanted I need to be kind of smacked a million miles outside of it what did like everything start happening at once or was it like little symptoms here and there it was relatively quick, to be honest. Um, it felt, you know, good and, and everything. And then suddenly, almost out of nowhere, my health just kind of felt like it fell off a cliff. And I, over the course of about six to eight weeks, had gone from living a completely normal life to basically being bedbound. Yeah. And I had extreme chronic fatigue, um, kind of ordering I guess towards the ME inside in the sense I really couldn't do anything I couldn't control my heart rate or my circulation or my digestion and so my heart would be normal sitting down mm. um high 50s and then I would stand up and it'd be about 180 190 oh my god yes yeah, so you've got consistent heart palpitations you feel like your heart's going to just like ping out of your body at any point obviously that's really exhausting but also your blood pressure drops when you stand up so then you kind of get incredibly dizzy yeah, and get like that blacking out yeah. um obviously you, you can pass out so you don't really feel like you can move around or do anything and then I had um or you know extreme pain just body pain everywhere it felt like my body was like on fire mm. all sorts of other things like migraines extreme IBS I was looked more pregnant at that point than I did when I was almost seven months pregnant with my daughter wow 
So basically nothing worked. I had like extreme infections. I spent, I think it was almost three years on antibiotics for um, like extreme level of UTIs. The longest I was off it was 72 hours. Oh my gosh. Um, so it was extreme. And I was, that whole summer I was in hospital having, I had several MRIs and colonoscopies and endoscopies and cystoscopies, which when they put camera into your bladder because I was starting to get scarring from these infections. Swallowed cameras, you know, had to not eat or drink anything for 12 to 24 hours, wake up to a little post-it note saying nil by mouth. And I was just so lost on kind of every I level. Imagine. When you say first went into hospital, did they have a kind of idea of what was going on? Well, initially, actually, the assumption it was all to do with my stomach because I looked so extreme, as in I, I looked like I was seven months pregnant. Mm. You know, I couldn't do up a single item in my wardrobe. Like, I couldn't wear anything that I owned. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't matter what I did, it wouldn't go away. So the assumption was it obviously had to be something to do with my stomach. So initially, I was working with a lot of gastroenterologists. And then it was, maybe it was hormonal that was causing that. So it was endocrinologists, then it was neurologists. And... We kind of went round and round the houses until I eventually got my diagnosis. And then when I did get that, I was actually really happy, which yeah. like in retrospect, I kind of want to give myself a hug and be like, oh, it wasn't going to be that easy. But I, I think I had felt so confused and almost sometimes people kind of asking the question like, is this psychosomatic you yeah. know are you and then you feel like you're exactly a little bit like gaslit like totally. and it's like because you can't explain you know being in such extreme pain for example like it hurts me when you just touch my arm that's quite hot you can't see it yeah you know and you can't see the extent of the dizziness or it's that is it that exhaustion which is like I could sleep for the next six weeks and it wouldn't make any difference I feel when I'm lying in my bed like it would be so hard to just move my arm like that would be so exhausting the idea then of like standing up and going to the kitchen feels as hard as it feels to me to like go and run a marathon today right. and I don't run like it feels yeah. that that hard which I know you can't explain that to people no of um, course and I think especially if people can't find answers I can imagine you started to doubt yourself as well and I can imagine completely. it's just like you want to be like I promise you I'm feeling like this exactly but I can't it's not really tangible and then mm. even when I did get the diagnosis it's not a, it's called postural tachycardia syndrome it's mm. not an illness that people really familiar with either and it's still largely invisible it's quite easy to feel lost by it. and I think also because I was lost and I already had low self-esteem and my natural inclination was to kind of I guess protect myself my my instinct was to draw back and to yeah. retreat and to not talk about it and just accept the fact that people wouldn't necessarily get it and almost use that as evidence to retreat further from right. the world and when you were given that diagnosis, what did they say that kind of meant? It wasn't particularly clear, to be honest. And I think I probably didn't ask all the questions. It's, there's definitely kind of blurriness almost at that point. But it was, it's a chronic illness. Some people respond really well to the drugs. Some people don't. Slightly, we don't know what will happen next. But mm -hmm. I just felt because it had a name and because there were lots of different medications that I could take, then it would obviously get yeah. better. And like six weeks from now, I'd be back at uni and I'd be back living my best life and I can just take these drugs and like, that will be that. I don't really have to do anything. And then when that wasn't the case and I didn't really get any better, even though I was taking kind of 20 to 25 different drugs every day, that was the bit that I think was the kind of really... And actually, it wasn't the wake-up call. Strangely, it was this moment of, like, just extreme apathy. Yeah. Um, I just gave up. Yeah. I just felt that there weren't any solutions at this point. And so I just kind of retreated from the world almost for the next, like, six months. I didn't try and talk to my friends. I didn't try and, for want of a better expression, bring anyone on the journey with me. I just right. kind of retreated. And I think it took me, like, six to nine months to recognize that and to recognize the fact that like the current trajectory was awful like it was really depressing and, you know, and I remember talking to my mum about it and I kind of was saying to her but how would I move out of home right. like who how, how do I have a job what could I possibly do and I remember her and I trying to kind of go through potential options and and nothing led anywhere because I just wasn't well enough to do any yeah. of it. And I think that was the moment where I thought, 
So I've got to find a way to change something because I hadn't, I don't think I'd been honest with myself about mm -hmm. quite what it meant. I just retreated. I watched all of the Kardashians or right. type shows. I was Grey's Anatomy, I think yeah. it was, and loads of reality TV type shows and just, yeah, retreated completely from the world. And it was, that was the moment of realizing like everything that I thought that I could do. And as I said, I didn't have any ambitions. I did, it's not like I had this clear career plan where I wanted to achieve X or I wanted to achieve Y, but I wasn't going to achieve anything. Which probably made, made you feel even more lost because it was kind of like, you know, if you already had this feeling of kind of loss and lack of direction, as you said at the beginning, and then you're in this situation where it's like, not only can I not do anything, but I don't know if I would, what I would want to do if I could do anything. And I can imagine that was just like a real low. Completely. And maybe it would have helped if I did know what mm. I wanted to do because I, I think maybe it would have helped me try and channel some motivation it's worth trying to get from A to B but mm. I think because I hadn't got a clue what B was because I didn't really know myself and I didn't really know what I wanted from life yeah I'd never really felt particularly I was fine at everything I wasn't kind of catastrophic I wasn't a failure but I wasn't particularly good at anything mm. either I'd kind of just been like fully average mm. I did I think it didn't probably help finding some kind of drive to try and push myself to look for other solutions yeah or other ways out because I don't think I had enough mission or purpose to want to get out mm. no I can completely understand that and I can imagine that was just terrifying and boring and like all of the things in between where you're kind of just like where do I go from here totally and so what happened from this point of diagnosis and the drugs not necessarily working in the way they originally thought they would, what happened next in terms of your university, in terms of your kind of day-to-day? -day? So I kind of just stayed at somewhere near my rock bottom for about six to nine months. Mm -hmm. And then... Didn't go back to university? I did a bit, but mm -hmm. I didn't leave my room, which, I mean, who knows in retrospect what was the right decision and what wasn't. I think it made me feel infinitely lonelier, and I think I probably use that isolation that I had put on myself as evidence again to the fact that like I didn't fit in and yeah. you know, no one likes me and I also think that like university friendships can be the best friendships ever but I also think they can be quite fickle in the first few years because you're all trying to find this new your new self your new direction your adulthood all of this and so you kind of like you know I know lots of people who made really good friends in first year and they turned out to be people they never spoke to again kind of after that because everything's so quick and it's so sociable in a way that you never get again in your life and so I can imagine that having I mean I don't know what kind of what your friends were like at the time and whether they're still friends that you have now but like I can imagine having made those friends that's also based off not just liking each other but being able to go out and being able to you know whatever it might be 100% I mean I think that was a really big part of it and I remember one moment where I used to just like sit and refresh Facebook and I remember all these photos coming up and it was a party that everyone and it was like one of the big parties everyone would look forward to every year and all of my flatmates and all of my friends were there together and they were so dressed up and they looked so glam and they looked so gorgeous and there I was you know like really not looking my best you know I looked like I was six seven months pregnant I felt kind of completely catatonic mm. um, which in retrospect was quite a hefty experience of depression but I, yeah. I I didn't realize that depression could mean apathy at that point yeah, I, thought, right. I thought I just needed to be crying and I felt nothing yeah I just I didn't feel sad I felt numb mm. and but I remember that like really hit me like a ton of bricks actually when I was there I was wearing you know some like extra large men's tracksuit to fit around my stomach and I was swallowing all these steroids I was you know and god knows how many antibiotics and beta blockers and all the rest of it I still couldn't do anything and all my friends were there and they looked so gorgeous and so glam and they were living their complete best lives and I just felt like a freak yeah and I know that's such a kind of brutal and it, you know that's very much I feel like a early 20s view of yourself because I think as you said we're all often on that journey in that kind of late teens 20s period of our life where we are trying to figure out who we are and where do we fit and who that push and pull between kind of being honest with yourself about who you actually are, you know, are you more introverted, etc. Yeah. And what the norms are at that point mm. in life, which are kind of 
annoyingly quite set even mm. if but I was so far from removed so far removed from being able to join in with that and that yeah it was just one of those moments you remember yeah and had you random question but interested in terms of like what who you had around you at that point had you maintained the relationship that you kind of got into in the previous year yeah I had maintained the relationship and he was one of the only people that I f- was honest with but I didn't maintain really any of my friendships yeah I I just I don't think I was comfortable being vulnerable especially if you're in a point of kind of apathy but also kind of an element of exclusion and all of these things and victimhood like to be really frank with myself Mm. you know I definitely saw myself as the victim Mm. as this is really unfair why has this happened to me you know this this yeah I saw it as being deeply unfair and so I think I put myself into Mm. you know people should be nice to me because this is really difficult for me right and chronic illness is deeply unfair but I also I I completely but it doesn't help exactly I completely take what you're saying in a way of kind of you you know perhaps there would have been more people there for you like if I had opened my door Mm. you know I know there are people in my life and I said look I can't come out and this is really difficult that I can't drink and I can't come to the party, but I can watch a film. Yeah. So like, on the night still, you're not yeah. coming out, you know, should we like mm. have and something I, to eat together and watch a movie and like cuddle up? I, that, you know, there is, I think that's just been a big lesson for me over mm. the last kind of 12, 13 years is like, ultimately life is full of unexpected challenges and whether it's chronic illness, loss, you know, whatever it is, challenges in your work life, your personal life, that is the nature of life and I think accepting that is so important because fundamentally like the only thing you can do is internalize the solution Mm. and I think the more you know the difficult things will happen and you and only you can find a way really fundamentally to get through it that's probably the thing that I wish I knew most at that point which is that Mm. this is unfair to some extent this is really difficult but other people have it infinitely worse. There are still really good things in your mm. life. You're ignoring those good things. You're choosing not to see them because it kind of paints an easier story for you to tell yourself right. to make up more excuses why you can't do anything that would help you. Mm. And I think that's really powerful um, in being able to recognize and being able to kind of take control of, you know, what happens next yeah. for you and who you have around you. And what, what did happen next in kind of you moving on from that point? It was the moment that I recognized what was actually happening and how isolated I was, how depressed I was, how like dire my physical health was, and the fact that on those grounds, like I didn't really have much future. Um, it was the moment that I recognized that, which as I said, took me like six to nine months to be able to do. And I could do, only I could do it. You know, other people could tell me you know, I think this would help or that would help. But fundamentally, I think when you make big changes in your life, they have to come from you. They can't come from anybody else because big changes are hard. And I think you, it's only that really internal motivation that works. And yes, it was, it was recognizing the bleakness of the future, not just the now. Surely there's more that I could be doing. And it was almost in kind of a big sense and a small sense. It's like I knew you know, if I ate loads of pick and mix, it made my heart palpitations infinitely worse. Like the worse my blood sugar got, the worse palpitations got. And they were already horrendous. Like a normal heart rate when standing for me would be 180 to 190. And so why don't I try and not make them worse? Mm. <laughs> um, why don't I take a level of responsibility? All my doctor said, we're trialing an exercise program. Um, do you want to be part of that? And saying, yes, I do. I want to take these active decisions. And as, as I started doing that, I then, I guess it, it got broader than that. And I was started to be very interested in, okay, there must, I'm, I think I'm this victim and I am to this extent, but I'm not the only person who's dealing with chronic health and I never will be. And I, and, you know, I certainly haven't been in the past. What have other people done? And, you know, I started reading stories of people all around the world who'd had all sorts of different challenges with their health and they had used various different facets of the kind of health and well-being world, diet and lifestyle, nutrition, to improve or change or alleviate various symptoms. And there's a sense of, well, if it's worked for them, mm. it might work for me. And almost just that was this kind of extraordinary game-changing moment in my life where I think I took 
I actually took some responsibility and in taking responsibility, I felt so empowered. Nothing had changed. It wasn't better. Like I certainly didn't know if I would be better, but I had this sense of hope and the hope came from me and the idea that I could drive this forwards. Mm. And so I started, I thought, okay, and the other thing that I realized I needed was something to occupy me. Mm. I, you know, it was so unhealthy to just sit in my bed all day and refresh Facebook and look at what I wasn't doing and feel worse about myself or just a kind of binge watch series. Nothing wrong with binge watching a series, but when you've done that every day for 250 yeah, days, not, what you need. not so good. Um, and obviously the hobby's got to be realistic given the fact that, you know, I couldn't do the vast majority of things, but there were things I could do. And again, it was trying to remove the excuses. And so that I started trying to change my diet and I thought well, I will do this as my hobby I will learn to cook and I will write it all down and I'm going to take photos of it and I'm going to create a kind of diary of this and let's let's see if it helped and it was in creating that so I started deliciousciella.com that I wrote down why I was doing this and I wrote there you know I'm trying to turn a negative into a positive if that could help one other person then maybe there's something worthwhile in this whole experience and again it was just so cathartic as my way of processing I think what had happened and this idea that there was I could feel empowered I could take control couldn't control everything but there were many more things I could control mm. than I was allowing myself to believe so what types of things were you doing when you started deliciously Ella was it general kind of recipes was it posting updates on your illness it was all recipes I didn't really it wasn't wasn't really about me mm -hmm. um that was you know I wrote a kind of short um bio. this is why I'm doing it yeah. exactly as a bio because it was weird you know it was at that point this was 2012 yeah coming up to 11 years ago somehow it was a strange thing to do and I think in the world we live in today you know plant-based is so common we're obviously we're recording this in January veganuaries everywhere people are very aware of the link between nutrition and health and well-being and the facets of kind of all the different angles of wellness that contribute to that but that wasn't a conversation that people were having you know 10 11 12 years ago the world has changed at kind of lightning speed between now and then and so I felt I had to almost justify why I was doing this yeah. why I was trying to turn sweet potatoes into a brownie and yeah and sure. so on because it was quite out of the ordinary yeah and I think it was so new it was so the kind of you know, especially at a time when not everyone was on Instagram, there was this trope of like the people who are on Instagram who are eating like avocado chocolate mousse and like all exactly. of this stuff. And I can imagine there was like some real resistance to that as much as there were people who were, you know, loving it and very much benefiting from it. I can also, I can almost like see the Facebook memes. Oh my gosh, so much resistance to it. And, and I think you know, as well, definitely after Delicious Yellow kind of took off, for want of a better word, in the beginning of 2015 in the kind of media landscape, yeah, it was it was definitely a kind of big punch-up. Yeah. <laughs> um, a public punch-up, which when you're, again, in your kind of mid-20s, was quite an experience. I can imagine. Um, but, yes, no, it was uh, loved by some, hated by others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I feel like anything good you do it needs to elicit some sort of emotion. Like if people are apathetic towards what you're doing, you're probably not making moves. Although I went, I went fully vanilla for quite a long time. Really? To try yeah. and... Because it was so then, so we, Delicious Yellow sort of took off if we wanted a better expression beginning of 2015 with my first cookbook. Mm -hmm. That was the moment where we went from this big but niche online community into kind of public mainstream. The book had kind of broken a lot of records and, and had, picked up a, a huge amount of media and suddenly people were very interested it in the space. It was so of the time. And there was nothing like it that yeah. had ever been done before. And I never used to own that, but it was. It was yeah, nothing. No, it's incredibly None impressive. of the big kind of players in this space now had done anything yeah. in this space at that point. So it, it was, it was, it was quite revolutionary at, the, at that time. But I was 23. Yeah. Right. And I was coming out of a very dark place and I hadn't known or admitted to myself how many of my mental health challenges I'd had because I kind of couldn't face yeah. being so broken in every facet of my being that I hadn't addressed that and I hadn't had any support in that area and so I was dealing with a lot of kind of public narrative that moved from people talking to you to talking about you 
at such a young age with no ability to handle it, with quite low self-esteem. And in the beginning of 2017, there was a kind of two or three week period where I felt I was, really did feel I was like kind of public enemy number one. And pretty much every, you know, like written bit of media, every kind of media outlet had some sort of column on piece on like why I was the worst person on earth. Which is so wild. I was just like Donald Trump and it was really brutal. I feel like with things like that, when it's like, sure, you don't agree with something, you don't want sweet potato brownies, you don't like any of those things. It's like, you know, at the same time as if you're on a diet, you're not going to look at someone else and tell them they have to have a salad. Like it's not, you know, it's really, there's a kind of element of mind your own business. But I also think we have such tall poppy syndrome in the UK if you do really well at anything and I would say that I've you know I've done well on social media but I've never been in the kind of like public mainstream which has meant that I've never kind of got into tabloid culture or general press hating me or whatever it might be but like there is this real element of like you're built up and up and up and put on this pedestal just to the point that they can rip you down like as in there really is this element and I would say especially with women like we don't seem to have a problem with men being successful for like what you know they might be saying you know if they're saying oh this is a ridiculous reason she's got a cookbook but she's not a you know whatever it might be like we allow men to experience that success without having the need to rip it apart and I really feel like we have this problem of like building people up to the point it's like it's the same as the girl boss thing like it's like build people up because you can't believe that someone's doing so well and looks so good and like all of these things just to the point that you're like I've put you on this pedestal now I'm going to take you off this pedestal like so dramatically yeah no I I would agree with that and I think at the time you know I was still very very young and I, Mm. I wouldn't have I certainly didn't have the confidence and the courage to stand up for myself effectively um, and kind of fight back. So that's not really my character, but to have an opinion on the flip side yeah, of it. Sure. But I think, you know, and that's a really, that was one of the most like, kind of startlingly obvious things was that every person, and it was all about this, the whole narrative was a real criticism of healthy eating mm-hmm. and that the culture of healthy eating was inherently negative. And there were two things that I never, I just didn't have the confidence to say. The first is that every person that was being criticized was a woman. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of men operating in this space, you know, maybe talking about like before and afters and weight loss, and they were never mentioned in a single article and Mm -hmm. I think you can't you can't escape that and now I would be very clear on that that there's yeah of that is you can't escape the fact that that's a clear part of the narrative and why is that and I would have kind of pushed that and questioned that but I did not have the confidence to do that and I think the second part is I don't think I ever would have had criticism if what I had done was like a baking cookbook and I think that that's a really important conversation because you know, yes, I totally understand that there's facets of healthy eating and let's have a nuanced debate about about that and about what we should be focusing on and what that looks like and what should public strategy be. But also let's be completely honest about the fact that our current state of public health is dire. The current trajectory of lifestyle-related diseases, the mental health epidemic, it cannot continue and it correlates so exactly with the poor state of our diet and the way that we look after ourselves. And so, yes, you do not need to eat lentils every day. Yes, you do not need to be plant-based. Could I have been clearer about that? Probably. Was I 23? Absolutely. Mm. Did I know what I was doing? No. Mm. (laughs) But you do need to eat lentils and carrots and potatoes. And I think we have to stop hiding from that. And again, at the time, I just didn't have the confidence to say, hang on a second, we need to talk about why we need to change the way that we eat. And the only way to change that we, how we eat is by making healthy food feel more accessible, more exciting, more interesting, more delicious. That's what we're doing. And in retrospect. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was very interesting. But to your point about being vanilla, I took such a kind of beating from that. And it took such a kind of massive chunk of, of my self-worth, which again, I still hadn't really actively built back up or up in general at this point that I felt I should just be really vanilla. I felt I shouldn't really have an opinion. I kind of, everything was so, but you can do it your way. To yeah, the point yeah. where it's like, what on earth do we as a brand stand for? And I think we really, 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 really lost our way in some way around that time because yes, not everyone's going to like you and that's absolutely fine. But I think A, I found that quite hard to admit. And then B, I think because the people not liking me had felt so vicious that I was... I was just scared of kind of yeah. bringing that up again. It's so interesting because I definitely went through the vanilla stage too in terms of being like, I was so apologetic. Like I would get, I remember I got this like torrent of bad press for like this one, I can't remember what it was. It was something that was like so, I was like, if you're going to do that, do it about something that's like like worth it. Like this is the least like, I can't even remember what it was, but I remember being so apologetic and being like, oh, I didn't mean to come across that way. I didn't mean this. If I had sat there and been like, no, I didn't come across that way. You're looking for things to like go wrong. And actually, if you don't want it, don't follow it. Like as in, I'm irrelevant enough that if you don't follow me, you're never going to see me. So like, like just move on. And I think also that would have ironically made me more likable and it's like you start just like caveating everything disclose like disclaiming everything like all of this right and then and you mean actually, nothing to no yeah one. and everyone's just like okay um I also think that it is inherently and like vastly problematic that sure someone doesn't want to eat lentils someone doesn't want to eat avocados like whatever you were recovering from a chronic illness by doing something that empowered you and made you feel better and made you healthier. That doesn't mean that it needs to apply to any other person. I think the press absolutely, and I haven't, you know, done a deep dive into the bad press you got and all of these different things, but like, I think the press absolutely should have got a hard time for ripping into someone who is actually getting through a chronic illness and being like, you shouldn't do this for this, this, and this. Likelihood is you're a healthy person who's not been through that situation. Who the fuck are you to tell someone that they need to like not do that and not like, don't do it then. Like eat, eat whatever you want. Like, you know, I'm sure you eat somewhat healthy, somewhat whatever. It doesn't matter. But actually telling someone that the way they're dealing with a chronic illness is wrong is deeply problematic. And I don't think if they understood the illness better or understood chronic illness or took women women's health seriously because I think a lot of the time there is seem to be this kind of like hypochondria and this kind of you know we say it all the time with like issues like PCOS and endometriosis that you know doctors don't believe women and vastly like the disproportionate gender balance in medicine makes that even worse I think no one would have not taken a man's chronic illness seriously and would have told them that they were doing something wrong in response to it like I think that is deeply deeply problematic and it makes me so sad that you wouldn't have had the confidence at the time which I wouldn't have had if I was in that situation but to be able to turn around and honestly be like honestly fuck you <laughs> like as in I actually like who are you to tell me what I need to do to get through this and actually this is the first time I felt great in like x amount of time I don't care if you don't want to eat this like that is not my problem like that literally not none of this affects me sorry for going on an absolute rant but I like I really think it has to be said no but I think we apply that to so much and I think the challenge was the argument was you know don't tell everyone you know don't sure. publish recipes encouraging people to eat healthy food sure lol like I mean I don't really I don't really actually even know how to finish that sentence yeah but it is exactly that I think that we're just so quick to judge other people and to you know we all have our ways of doing things in our mm. life and you know outside the world of well-being very much so and we're just so quick to judge people's 
relationships or the dress sense or their career choices or whatever it is their parenting we're just very very quick to say I wouldn't do it that way so that's the wrong way to do it so I I fundamentally disagree with you and I'm going to write about it Mm. and I think just I guess the older I get and and also having two little girls I think I feel very passionately about that that we should just all let each other be yeah let's um be interested and inspired by each other um there's a huge amount to learn from one another but also what works for you will not work for me what works for you today what probably won't work for you in five years yeah in the way you work the way you eat clothes you wear whatever it is like Mm. every facet of your life and I just think there's a yeah yeah there's a kind of rigidness and dogmaticness with which we treat a lot of conversations and I think our health and well-being is a big part of that Mm. and that is difficult you know I remember writing in the first book like this is what worked for me take the bits that work for you and kind of do with it as you will but that's obviously what, you know, that's not very interesting, is it? So let's just ignore that part and yeah. go for the bits that create a kind of riled up Yeah, I think it's so interesting. And I think that I wouldn't have had the equipment at the time to really analyse, like, this is why this is problematic. It's so easy to see a narrative on social media or in the press and to believe it. And I think that we, especially with social media, it's so easy to lack critical thinking when it comes to, like, you know, I have it all the time when I, like, hear about a woman that's really hard to work with and I'm like oh yeah but they're really hard to work with it's like oh or maybe that's like probably a function of the fact that we see women as hard to work with and we see men as assertive especially if they're successful and know what works whatever it might be so I can imagine that was incredibly hard to deal with and as someone who was experiencing a lot of success I'm sure you also felt like well I can't really complain because I'm making lots of money and making lots of sales and all of these things and therefore like who am I to say, sit down, just don't buy my book, you idiot? Yes, no, exactly. I, I just didn't have the confidence mm. um, to to do that. And I think that's taken a long, long, long time to build. It's probably a kind of consistent life journey, isn't it? Mm. But I definitely at that point didn't. Mm. And in terms of then building the business from the cookbooks to you know, the products you have in stores now, the restaurants, like all of this. How did that journey kind of start from the first cookbook? So the first cookbook came out Jan 2015. And then it had this kind of roaring success. And it was very, very clear that there was this kind of enormous gap in the market. People were suddenly fascinated by kind of better for you food products and plant-based. But there wasn't anyone meeting that need. You know, it didn't really exist in stores or obviously kind of on the high street. And I met my now husband um, at the end of Jan, so kind of a few weeks after the book had come out. And we met for work, and we we kind of had a few coffee dates, but not not romantically, like just conversations. What did he do at the time? He was working in finance. Okay. We started going out beginning middle of March and we moved in together after a week and it was like oh my god uh, yeah sorry yeah yeah yeah. oh no we were like we moved in after a week and had a dog had started a business together within the year we were married wait are you like an impulsive person no well actually sorry that was way too impulsive (laughs) no no um I am in some ways I think I'm kind of very considered in some senses Mm. but I know what I want Mm -hmm. and I think in that sense I'm very clear on it and he is as well I didn't know if I ever wanted to even get married I'm not sure I totally believed in the concept of marriage this was like a full 180 yeah so you started being like officially together and then a week later you moved in together yeah how even logistically did that happen so we went on our first date on the Thursday second date on the Sunday third date the following Thursday so a week later and I never left didn't spend a night we've literally not spent a night apart since unless one of us has to travel for work oh my god yeah do you think you're like connected in some way like to me there's nothing like I don't trust myself enough to be able to judge someone well enough that like I I know what I want but I can't judge that they won't not be like that in a year if that makes sense totally yeah look I I didn't know I believed in marriage if I believed in it at all if I'd ever get married I was quite sceptical. My parents had had a very strange relationship mm-hmm. and I was quite sort of sceptical of this whole area. The idea of like a soulmate, I mean, no way, like love at first sight, yeah. Disney only. So I was coming at this from the polar opposite end of the spectrum. But we met and it was, it was like, 
I don't really know how to explain it without sounding kind of completely mad, but it just, the other person was just home. And we'd led these very strangely parallel lives. We're almost eight years apart. He likes me to say seven, mm. <laughs> so he can come down a year yeah, yeah. and get a year back, but almost eight um, years apart. But we, our parents has worked together for a very long time. Um, we lived about 15 minutes away from each other. Because our parents had worked together, we'd had some similar life experiences that had kind of really shaped us and we knew so many of the same people we used to go to so How many of the same places because we were eight years apart and we oh, met when so, I was really yeah, young yeah. you know I was in my I was 23 when we met yeah. so you know much before that would have been kind of mildly inappropriate, inappropriate. yeah <laughs> exactly um and he'd lived in the states from when he was 16 as well you know so when he left the country I was eight so we, we'd never met, met my dad quite a few times um, and knew him, but we had never, we'd never met. But when we met, it was just like, we just knew each other so, so well, even though we knew nothing about each That's other. so lovely. And it's, you know, I'm sure anyone around us was... Yeah, they must have been like, what the fuck? Very confused. No, they must have genuinely been like, oh my God. Yeah. Especially the engagement, like three months later. 100%. And, you know, some people, I remember my ex-boyfriend saying like, is this a joke? Like, are you okay? Uh, Yeah, literally like called one of my best friends and was like, is she okay? Yeah. Which is really valid and very caring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long before was your previous relationship? Um, we broke up at the beginning of that January and that had been just over four years. Right. So you can see yes, why Yes, I can understand why. <laughs> like, I mean, it's great. Like, as in you guys okay? are clearly so meant to be together and all yeah. of this, but I, if my friend had done that, I'd be like, let's sit down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cup like, of tea. I need to talk to you. Yeah, more than fair enough. Yeah. Um, so it was a kind of absolute whirlwind. It really was. And it has been since the day we met. You know, we've been together now eight years, basically. And in that eight years, you know, we've had two children and a dog. We've moved house three times. We've moved office three times. Um, My parents have kind of broken up and my whole, like, traditional biological family has dismantled beyond belief with all sorts of bizarre things. His mum passed away. His family has therefore changed a lot as a Mm. result. We've, you know, started four different businesses together. It's it's like we've been living life on times 30, yeah. basically. Yeah. Are you tired? <laughs> yeah. Please. Yeah. You know, you know what? Actually, honestly, we're both really tired. Yeah. And I think we've really recognized that over the last, like, it's almost the last little bit has been quite normal. And then also navigating the business through covid and lockdowns and brexit and inflation so it's like not only you know and you know this better than anyone owning a business is a mm-hmm. experience when you call it that yeah like and you go like <laughs> up down all around and yeah. your highest highs and your lowest lows and you never know what's coming and you know you said earlier if we started recording like the things that you think are going to be the best things you've ever done are the worst things you've ever done and you know you're always living kind of on the edge of your seat aren't you because you you're always ready for whatever's coming next but that coupled with next being like lockdowns yeah. and Brexit and inflation right. etc is like almost impossible with two newborns with a lot of grief and all the rest of it so it has been I think we normalized the madness of which we were living and don't get me wrong there has been some amazing moments in the madness like it yeah. has been incredible like it really has been incredible it's been the adventure of a lifetime we both feel deeply privileged to have had that experience but We've certainly probably done like 30 years in eight. Yes. And our, I think we are both now feeling the consequences of it. Yeah, I can imagine that. And so before we come on to that and what that means for, for you, let's talk about the businesses a little. So general trajectory of it was that you had the cookbooks originally and then that went into food? Yes. So we had, so we had the cookbook and then it was him and... Well, I guess there's one part, which is that he was looking at the way I was running the business and was like, um, I think you need a hand. And I say that not, you know, I could eat, that could easily be taken out of context as he was like being misogynistic and condescending. He wasn't. I was 23. Mm. And so I was really figuring everything out. And also, and I'm 
I think in business, knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at is essential and being really open about that. And I am really good at brand and I'm really good at knowing what to do in that arena. And I am really bad at all things practical and operations Mm -hmm. and logistics. And so he was looking and I mean, it was everything was tiny at this point. It was just like cooking classes and supper clubs. But, you know, my literal back of a, you know, napkin sums about whether you know, things were stacking up and I was charging the right ticket prices. And so he started to help me with those sorts of things because mm. that's just not my area of expertise. I knew how to sell out the class mm-hmm. and how to make, you know, the next one three times bigger because I, I knew how to get the brand right and yeah. the messaging right and the kind of USP right, but I didn't know how to make the back end work. Mm-hmm. And he hated his job in finance. He was just desperate to get out. He was like itching. And I think it just became very clear to both of us that he had the passion and skill set for business and I had the passion and the skill set for the brand. And if we brought that together, we could take this massive opportunity that Delicious Yellow suddenly had where we had the brand that was leading the conversation in this brand new space and people wanted to fill that up with food products on shelves, et cetera. Mm. And if we did it together, we could do that. And if we didn't do it together, we never would. And people always quite quick to say it's, you know, it's like anti-feminist or it's self-deprecating to say we'd never have done what we've done without him. But not in a million years. Like Delicious Yellow probably would have stayed cookbooks and, you know, recipe website and an app. And and that's all great. But it never, ever, ever would have the kind of physical Mm -hmm. presence, the value that it has today as a company. Did you ever have, because obviously there are so many horror stories Maybe I, I mean, maybe I overthink everything. I can tell you for sure I overthink everything. But did you ever have like a moment of being like with him coming into the business and obviously your relationship moving fast and like the business kind of moving fast Mm. and all of that? Were you ever terrified that like something would go wrong or that you guys would break up and the business would go with it or whatever? Um, Strangely not, Mm -hmm. which... And I've worried about so many things within the business and where we're going and what we're doing. We both have a hundred times. But whether or not we could do it together has been the only thing I've never, ever questioned. Yeah. And also, you know, and everyone's so different that there's no one right way to do anything. But I think, I think that sense of like completely never-ending support has actually been one of the things that's allowed us both to do what we do. I've loved hearing about your relationship in the business and like how sure you are makes me like so sure I'm like it's it must be it must be the case and um, I want to come on to talking about the restaurants you opened when was the first one yeah so that's the very first thing we did so end of 2015 mm-hmm. it was our kind of test basically mm-hmm. which was that he had quit his job um we'd put literally all eggs in one basket mm-hmm. um and we felt we needed to test the water like is it really viable to take this online community and try and create goods and services um, that they'll want to be part of? And so we took a tiny lease. I think the rent was like 25 grand a year or so. Mm-hmm. No. Um, on We used to say it was like Marlebone. It wasn't <laughs> Marlebone. It was like Edgware Road. It wasn't as right. nice as it sounded. But it was this tiny, tiny, tiny site. Um, and our sense was that, you know, the business was doing well via the cookbooks and and the app and things and so if that didn't work out we could pay that rent until we could get rid of the lease right um you know initially we thought should we raise money should we open somewhere massive and it was like no let's test and learn and so we opened this tiny place and we opened it at the beginning of December neither of us had any experience in hospitality at all um and we found this amazing manager but she couldn't start till the end of January and we thought well that's fine look no one's going to come in December because no one's really interested in healthy living in December so it just gives us a few weeks pre-January pre-telling anyone it's open to learn to get it running and we opened the doors and within like four days we had these kind of 50 60 odd queues out the door and what was meant to be our like beautiful curated brand experience was this like sweaty unmanaged scrum sweet potatoes um (laughs) everyone diving for the lentils literally give me your carrots um it was a really kind of mad experience and we were just there kind of 18 hours a day every single day yeah and we had a system so i did the tills at the at the um entrance and so i could get a sense of kind of a customer and like your first experience and then Matt did the cleaning the table so that he could get the experience at the end and understand any kind of feedback that you had and it was amazing I mean it was we were literally there 18 hours a day seven days a week 
and we had you know we were really like learning as we went but it was it was it was so it was chaos but it was very very fun anyway it was very clear to us kind of on day four that we needed a better site this was right. a, wasn't a great location but it was also a terrible experience because mm-hmm. no one fit were people feeding back no people loved experience? it but they'd come and they'd want to come in and we only had 16 seats so we're like right. cool you can have a table in four hours i mean it was a cafe so <laughs> yeah, sure. it's not worth waiting four hours for yeah. so it couldn't do what we wanted it to do um, and so we found another site, a much bigger site, about 10 minutes walk away, which is the site that we still have. And we opened that um, and that opened October 2016. Um, and we started servicing them from a central kitchen, which was um, in South London. And we had a, like a little kind of shop window basically in the central kitchen. And the plan was to then roll those out and have kind of seven to 10 of them to make the central kitchen work. They were all, they were all profitable at site level, but to make the central kitchen work, we needed to get more scale. We needed six to seven of them. And at the same time, we launched our food products and the food products launched August 2016 and they went straight into Starbucks, Waitrose, um, Holland Barrett, uh, Whole Foods and like some more kind of smaller yeah. accounts and Ocado. And they really, really took off and that pipeline of different products to come really kind of was filling up fast and we had overstretched ourselves yeah. and that was incredibly clear on a kind of practical basis in terms of our time, but also we didn't have the financial resources to make the cash flow yeah, work. Yeah, cash flow at that yeah, level. Also b- with, for people who don't know, with supplying supermarkets, like you essentially have to foot the cost for yeah. a significant amount of time. Yeah, so you, exactly. We are buying the products and then the supermarket are paying us a month later, right. roughly. And so, you know, that's that's very cash intensive at the beginning. And obviously, as a new business, you don't have all the kind of invoice financing and things like that available to you at this point. Anyway, and so we had that and, and the sites and trying, you know, we were given advice at the beginning, like, don't do too many things. You won't be able to do them well. And we were like, no, we can do it. Yeah. We couldn't do it. And Matt was very clear on that much earlier than I wanted to hear it. Like, we have to choose one or the other. We, we can't think that we can do a scale-out FMCG company and a scale-out hospitality company right now. We don't have any external money in the business. So we're literally living on, like, two pounds. Yeah. And... Um, we weren't taking a salary at this point. So it was very stressful mm-hmm. and we had to make a decision which one to do. And it was very clear that the scalable opportunity was in retail. Mm-hmm. And so we closed the central kitchen and the, the teeny, teeny site that we opened. And then what happened was the story of closing them was not the story. The story of closing them was that we were going out of business. Right. And, um, and they were so loss making and what a disaster and that wasn't, and I don't, I say this completely honestly, that, that wasn't the story. Yeah. They were very profitable at site level. We'd opened the central kitchen knowing we needed at least more than five for that to work. But it was a pretty obvious choice because mm-hmm. we had a really exciting FMCG company with all our food products and snacks going into supermarkets. And then we had a hospitality business that was much more cumbersome, that was much more challenging and also realistically it's very very expensive to open a restaurant or a cafe site versus getting a product um going because we were relying on organic marketing through social media and the community that we'd created and so realistically we would have had to raise money Mm -hmm. to open that many sites right and so we chose the products business Mm -hmm. and we kept the uh, one really nice site and we closed the central kitchen and the teeny site that we were always going to close in the long run because it was a terrible site yeah and the story was that we were going bust. And every newspaper article that talked about it was like, what a terrible business it was, what a moron I was, how much we'd got wrong. No one mentioned the fact that like within, we were the, one of the fastest growing um, snacking companies at this point. We'd had, you know, 3,000 listings in a year. The business in that sense was going from strength to yeah. strength. And like, I got a call from one of the big four retailers asking if we'd be able to supply them because we were going bust. He was so sorry to read about it in the newspaper. Like it had a really devastating impact on the practical running of the it's business. It's just terrible journalism because it's like... Well, I mean, it's easy, isn't it? You look on company's house and you see some numbers and you deduce it down. But I think it was... I think the frustration was, was just... Um, 
here's this blogger who's a privileged moron. Yeah. Clearly, she, you know, they can't get anything right. Yeah, we knew this was going to happen. Blah, exactly. Blah, blah. And uh, interestingly, one of my best, best, best friends said, you know, some of her friends like took real satisfaction in it. They were like, oh, have you heard Alice failing? She's going out of business. And huge amount of learning from it. But it was, you know, and look, I dragged my feet with the decision because I yeah. was like, it will be so bad for the brand. We've got to do both. And that's one of the things that I'm worst at in our business is always thinking about kind of the brand and how it looks for the brand, not necessarily the kind of sensible business decision. Right. And I can imagine having to make that decision in terms of being like, look, I know we need to close, but right. I just like the And we had like, to lose 25 jobs. Right, of you course. Know, which and is a horrendous thing to have to do. Yeah. And I can imagine just like, I know that in that situation, I'd be so stuck on the idea of like, that's going to be so harmful, et cetera, et cetera, that I would be, I would drag my feet as well. But just because mm. I'd be like, yeah, sure, I know I have to do this, but like, give me a second. Because also like, you know, the media shitstorm, you know, all of like, ev- just everything that's going to happen as a response. And I can imagine that probably just wasn't very nice to be like, let's do this now. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah. You just wanted to put it off, didn't you? And I was like, just, I think you're just always secretly hoping there'll be some like magic answer that Mm. solves everything and there never is in life. And how did you deal with that response? But also on top of the response, I guess there was an element of starting something that then didn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out. How did you like recover from that, I guess, mentally? It didn't feel to us like we started something yeah, that sure. didn't work out. L- l- by the way, that's not to say that we haven't done that. Mm. Like we made every mistake but yeah, in the you book. you knew why it didn't. That didn't feel like that because I think we felt very confident if we had wanted it to, sure. it would have. We had amazing customer base. Like, as I said, the sites did really well. It was a, it was a, the problem was trying to do too many things. And that's something that we definitely have a consistent problem in our life. It probably, you know, I said earlier about being quite vanilla and retreating quite a lot. I think this was a very similar time. And I think that all fed into that, you know, let's kind of disappear. And, you know, again, to be just completely frank, we're a business that operates in a very unusual marketing strategy, which is we, we don't have any external investment. We still have a marketing budget of about three pounds, you know, relatively speaking. Yeah. And yet we're trying to compete against like brands owned by Mondelez and, mm-hmm. you know, Procter & Gamble and things like that. And so our marketing works. All our marketing is basically done organically through social media. You know, we've just done our first paid ads for the very, very first time. We're like still spending a teeny bit of the fraction of what anyone else would spend on it. And so it was a terrible decision. and, And I take complete responsibility for that because ultimately it didn't help our growth yeah. because we weren't bringing new people into the brand because we weren't doing anything interestingly. Mm. Yeah, it's so frustrating as well because I always look back at that time and I'm like, we didn't use paid ads for a reason, but paid ads were so cheap compared to now. And it, like, it literally is like so infuriating because you, you know, in the, the 2010s, you could literally build a business by buying customers through paid ads. And it always checked out, like ROI-wise, it always checked out. Whereas now it's like... You know, you can still get great results, but you li- you can't inflate a brand artificially in the same way. Yeah, um, completely. Which is really tough to look back on. Um, and what would you say your biggest learning throughout the whole, like if you could go back and speak to the you that had just started Deliciously Ella, what would you tell her? I think such a good question. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think the first is, is that nothing is ever either as good or as bad as you ever think it will be. You know, I, well, very few things are, you know, I think we've had moments where we, I don't know, remember our first Starbucks listing, we were like, that's it, we're done. Yeah. You know, it's going to make us this many millions, easy peasy. No. Yeah. Um, Don't get me wrong, it's a great listing, but, you know, you, I think it's so often you think one thing's going to happen, it's going to solve all your problems and it's going to be the kind of, silver bullet that will ride you to success or something bad happens and you think that's it everything's going to go crumbling down and and you know there's certainly been a few moments like that and it doesn't have to be that way I think you can always find a solution if you're willing to admit the problem quite quickly and and be very nimble with it but I think that's probably my biggest learning is like you you do you kind of get through everything um personally and professionally like the the hardest moments that we've had you still find a way out the other side and maybe the other side looks very different than what you'd imagined it to but but you can always do that and I think there's been a huge amount of learning and a huge amount of growth and a huge number of 
phenomenal experiences and opportunities, but we've also had some really, really, really low moments. Mm. Um, and yeah, and I think I think knowing you can get through them and, and nothing will ever be quite as dire or quite as brilliant as you think to try and stay on a more even keel. Yeah. I think that's I think that's probably the weird thing that I work on the most now mm. is almost like not reacting to things. And then also just enjoying it. You know, mm. I think that we live in such a culture of thinking like when I achieve this or when we've done this or once this project's finished, I'm going to really enjoy my life and I'll, yeah, you know. Yeah, live for an end goal. Exactly. And and I think that the end goal always moves, mm. you know, the, or a new problem arises. And I, I wish that, I think there's a period of it which I, I didn't enjoy because I think I was so deeply embedded in the stress and the nervousness and the anxiety that and the ups and downs of it that I think I stopped enjoying the journey and I kept mm. looking at like what the the kind of light at the end of the tunnel was and as soon as you got to that light the next thing would happen you know I remember the, we raised investment to help us with our cash flow mm. and it was like oh my god we could breathe and then two weeks later my, my mother-in-law was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer and you were just like bloody hell you know this will and that's obviously that's an extreme example but I think it was just those are the life lessons, which is that you you don't know what is coming and you don't know how you'll navigate it. But what you do know is no one can guarantee that once you've solved one thing, life will be easy. Mm. Yeah. And it's just you create a roller coaster ride for yourself when exactly. you allow yourself too much up those highs and too too down those lows. There's a um, Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which is all about entrepreneurship, one of the best books I've ever read. Um, he basically talks about entrepreneurship as you're either in a state of euphoria or terror. Like, you're never in between. 100%. And it's, like, the most spot-on thing I've ever heard. And it destroys you. You know, your nervous system can't live like no, that. No, it, it really can't. And I think that one of a physiologist who came on here who was essentially being like, your body cannot tell the difference between you being given stress that for me it might be an order moved out by four weeks and that fucks our cash flow and we're like you know I'm running around your body can't tell between that and you literally being told you're dying like as in those differences your body can't differentiate it's cortisol it's like this is it's a stress level and therefore you create this kind of unlivable um environment for yourself because you're constantly living off like huge dopamine hits and huge cortisol hits where you're like so you're always just in this like elevated exactly. wired setting and I just I'm really working on that as well as being like it's really bad it's really good either Obviously, way we'll figure it yeah, out either way you're gonna be good exactly. um and I think yeah I mean I think that's a perfect place to end I think that's a very valuable <laughs> lesson and one that I very much need to be learning oh me too work in progress <laughs> well thank you so much Such for coming pleasure. on you've been amazing thank you mom deserves better than a drugstore card this Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com